0: What
1: you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though.
2: It's Wednesday, August 28th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Lauren Ober sitting in for the inimitable, the irreplaceable, the singular talent that is Mike Pesca. A little word about me. I'm the host of Spectacular Failures, a podcast all about the biggest fails in business history. But perhaps more illustriously, I was a guest on this very podcast on July 19th, 2019. So I guess that kind of means I know what I'm doing. Not really, but whatever. Anyway... Regular listeners will know that this is the part of the show where Mike freewheels into some brilliant riff about something in the news that has stuck in his craw. He makes all kinds of clever arguments that wend their way on a path that eventually leads you, the listener, to a sparkling interview with an interesting talker. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask you a question. And that question is, did you know that Chelsea Manning is in jail? Or rather, did you know that she's in jail again? Because... I didn't, but I found out recently thanks to the computer, and I have to say, it made me feel some kind of way. Given our whiplash news cycle, you'd be forgiven if you'd forgotten all about Chelsea Manning. I kind of had, too. I just figured at this point, Chelsea Manning would be finishing up her memoir, consulting on a movie about her life, and raking in speaker's fees, giving keynotes about that time she went to prison for leaking classified military documents to WikiLeaks. What she is actually doing is sitting in the Alexandria, Virginia City Jail, where she's been held for more than 160 days on contempt charges. Manning has refused to testify in two federal grand jury investigations of WikiLeaks, the Julian Assange-fronted anti-secrecy machine. For her defiance, she was ordered to be held without bail for as long as the grand jury is seated, which could be 18 months— On top of that, the judge in the case slammed Manning with a $1,000 a day fine for every day she doesn't agree to testify. Her lawyers estimate the fines could add up to a half million dollars before all this is said and done. So until the grand jury wraps up, Manning has been taking correspondence college courses and reading letters sent to her by her supporters. She's also been tweeting, though not that often because jail. Now, I'm not condemning or endorsing Manning's original crimes or her current grand jury resistance. A whistleblower's got to do what a whistleblower's got to do. But what I can't get over is how this five foot two trans woman continues to stand on principle and live her convictions at the greatest personal cost to herself. as her previous gender, she was marked as an enemy of the state. Now she is a trans turncoat, doubly disloyal, if you will. She is seen in some circles as both a gender traitor and a traitor to the cause of American freedom. The only way the stakes could be higher would be if she denounced NASCAR or Bud Light or other things Americans love. So Manning's resistance makes no logical sense. There is something that happens for a lot of people when they come out, an inability to suffer inauthenticity and subterfuge. If you've been closeted, you bear the scars of secrecy. Once you're out, hiding things becomes not only tedious, but also triggering. Like, oh, hell no, I'm not going back in there. No, ma'am. So as former Army Private Chelsea Manning sits in Alexandria City Jail, I wonder if part of her motivation for standing so firm in the face of the full might of the American government is that it cannot be any other way. She can't bend to a system that doesn't feel exactly right to her. That imperative overrides everything. Manning has long stated that she believes the grand jury process to be an unethical judicial instrument shrouded in secrecy that denies witnesses, particularly political activists, their constitutional rights. And she has every right to feel that way, especially if she's called to be one of those witnesses. But that feeling comes with consequences, really big ones. I would guess that that never-again post-closet impulse is in part what is motivating Manning's resistance— which essentially means that it is Manning's transness that has allowed her to persevere. None of the decisions she's made up to this point make survival sense, so her motivation must be the result of a deeper, more fundamental urge. I can tell you from personal experience, the shadows super suck. Living the light is so much better. I guess even if that light only comes through a jail cell window. On the show today, it's chock-a-block full of women, so strap in, men— I spiel about political lady fashion and how the six female presidential contenders are changing the clothing game. But first, I talk to writer Vanessa Gregoriadis about America's first daughter and possible future presidential candidate herself, Ivanka Trump. Here's that. So, uh, Vanessa Gregoriadis, host of Tabloid: The Making of Ivanka Trump. Welcome to the Gist with Mike Pesca, which is actually just featuring me, Lauren Ober, who is not
1: Mike Pesca. Fabulous! Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad it's you. No, I love Mike. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So. I
2: first came across your podcast because I read your article in New York Magazine, your cover piece, Ivanka to City, colon, Drop Dead. Uh, (laughs) Friends, frenemies, (laughs) she'll never move back. Who needs New York society anyway? (laughs) Next stop, global princess. It, It was so interesting to me. And one thing that really stuck out, to me as I was reading this, is how many times—and you get into this in the podcast—how many times Ivanka has morphed. I mean, she was a daddy's girl, and then, like, a teen scenester, and a moody rebel, and, like, she hiked, you know, she went hiking for two weeks by herself, and then she's a tailored businesswoman, and you make the point sort of closer to the end of the piece. Like, now she's this diplomat princess, and I wonder, you know, she's not even 40 years old, how are there so, how are there so many personalities in one person and was that something that you were like oh i have to unpack like you know the many faces of ivanka for this
1: yeah. I mean, I think that when you talk to people, they talk about the different voices she does and how weird it is. Like, you're sitting with her and then yes. t- she turns into that bot that you see on TV. Yes, totally. Or, like, a guy who had been t- on a construction site with her was like, she'll be like, get her done and, like, speak in this, like, weird <laughs> construction site voice. And then the people who party with her, like, there's, like, they just like, blah, 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 like this chattery voice, you know, like, and I don't know. I mean, I guess I do different voices, too, but I just don't think that's something that people would note when they were like if a, if a reporter came to talk to them they wouldn't be like oh yeah that girl she talks in like a thousand different voices so mm-hmm. I thought that was bizarre I also like I kept talking to people and I've really rarely had this situation and I've interviewed and profiled and right around profiled many people like You know, Madonna, Monica Lewinsky, Ariana Huffington, like, uh, uh, Britney, like, uh, across the spectrum of, like, female stars. I've Mm -hmm. never really had the experience where I talked to 60 people and, yeah, most of them fell in, like, kind of one bucket. But I would say the closer that you got in and the more you got to people who really knew her and were willing to tell you the truth, the more bizarrely different the— impressions were of her like this person who used to be close with her hates her guts this other person absolutely loves her everybody agrees though Mm -hmm. the problem with her is her father Right. Well, so so one
2: thing that you were you were talking about is sort of you know that 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 uh, Donald Trump is is Ivanka's rosebud, right? It's you know I have to this is the thing I have to deal with, and it seems to me this sort of Electra complex daddy's girl cliche thing. It, it's like it's almost it almost seems like she's too good for that. Like she should be savvier than that, or at least go to therapy. Do you know what I mean? It's like so it's a it's a thing that is so obvious to everybody. Both like I mean it seemed like from listening to your show, like, it was a theme that kept coming up. It It is something that you can sort of just look at in sort of her speech patterns or the way that she almost models herself after him in this weird way. And so that, I don't know. I mean, do you think, like, girl, come on, you're better than this?
1: <laughs> I did, but I always thought it was about their relationship being some sort of, like, very close but somewhat demented relationship, Uh right? Where it was like, you know, he was only loving to her, et cetera, et cetera. Because the leaks we've gotten from the White House, right, are that, you know, he calls her baby and he wants her in meetings and he's, you know, affectionate to her in a way that he's not to other people. Right. You know, but I think that's relative because, like, around her friends growing up, they were like, this guy is— like as distant as a dad could be, right? You know, I mean, I had somebody say to me like, her childhood friends are her family because her real family was not fucking there for her, right? You know, yeah. That that she learned about her parents' divorce, like from photographers coming and standing so outside sad. her school, so sad, and asking her questions is really sad. And so I think that. It doesn't really do much for us because the way that she's acting, she's obviously complicit, but there's a degree to which she's kind of complicit and trapped, which is the way she's been really for her whole life. Mm -hmm. There's just no really harsher environment. Than the one that she grew up in. You know, that was another thing that I really think is like the only way to think about her is to think about the dynasty aspect and the way in which she has become invested in that and that her dad is becoming. Invested in that because I think the thing that happened at the G20, which totally blew up in her face, I'm sure she is totally embarrassed by it because she's really thin skinned, kind of like her dad, is what's like some sort of audition for like the UN ambassadorship, you know, like for taking Nikki Haley's role, which – you know, people said she would love. Obviously, she would love that. Like anything that kind of gets her into that princess diplomat, you know, high above the clouds area, is you know that's what she's going for. Like right. she's done with the Manhattan elite. She's on the Davos elite
2: now. When you have people, you know, descend down from New York who are you know nouveau riche society people who went to all the right schools who are who are doing just fine in their own business, right? I mean, and I say that. Well, I don't in quotes, think Jared doing was just doing fine. just fine, right? But I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> but like, but like, they they have they have a certain degree of status. I guess like I I'm always wondering like, what's the play? And you you know you talk about this, you allude to this, you know the sort of Ivanka presidency 2024, which like has me like clutching all of my pearls. <laughs> but but I do think that I do think that you're right. But 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 who does want to be president? Because to me, you know, being president isn't lining your pockets. You know, I mean, later maybe, but like, you know, when Donald Trump gets out of office, he could very well go to jail and might not be making a lot of money yeah. there. But so what's the what what do you think this sort of motivation is?
1: I mean, I think that, you know, what people said to me is her motivation isn't really money. It's just power. It's just greed. It's just grabbing everything. She just wants to grab everything. And I think that. I think she has this authenticity problem. So I don't know how she would really do as a politician. But if you start gaming it out, which Gabe Sherman and I do in one of the podcast mm-hmm. episodes, like, okay, what exactly is going to happen? She's not going to go back to the Trump org with her brothers. Right. That's not going to work. I mean, if he wins again, I mean, Lord help us, you know, the, I guess she'll just stick around there. Right. But she, if she, she could like, you know, get some hundred billion dollar real estate fund from MBS to run Mm -hmm. and she and Jerry could just run it and then they could just be like people who go to the Middle East a lot and who are on yachts and like hang out with, you know, kind of euros and Mm -hmm. ex-royals and people like that. Or she could move to Florida.
2: You know, in, in you're very well sourced in, in, in the podcast. I mean, you said you talked to, you know, like 60-some people, and a lot of them are people from her past who have, you know, very particular um, memories of, of her childhood, and a lot of them made me really, really sad. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the lemonade stand? Because that was something that I was like, oh, it's both sad and says a lot about how they think business works.
1: Right. So when Ivanka was like, you know, six or seven years old, they decided to have this lemonade stand at their house in Greenwich, Connecticut, which was like, you know, a big house because she couldn't have a lemonade stand at Trump Tower. It's like Fifth Avenue. But obviously every kid wants to have a lemonade stand once, right? So- Okay, they're going to do it. And Donald and Ivana are like, okay, you can do it. But they were always, like, very frugal with the kids, maybe because Donald, like, doesn't want to give anybody any money. Right. Um, But, you know, Ivana was also, like, you know, from a communist country, and they wanted to show them the value of money. I mean, this this is—everybody said this is kind of true. So Donald and Ivana are like, okay, you can set up a lemonade stand, and we're going to give you, like, the ice and the lemons and the this and the that, But, you know, you have to reimburse us for all of that out of the profits. So the kids are like, okay. So they set up the whole lemonade stand. But then they're like, oh, my God, we're on a cul-de-sac. Like there's nobody coming to our house. There's nobody walking by. And now we have to pay our parents back. And they're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Oh, here's an idea. The staff can buy the lemonade. We yeah. have the maid buy the lemonade. They always God. had bodyguards, right? Yeah. Like Donald always wanted to have bodyguards around. So like the bodyguards can buy the lemonade. The driver can buy the lemonade. <laughs> Just like, and so Ivanka tells this story herself in right. that self help book I was talking about, yeah. about how great she was when she was a little kid in learning the value of money. And when right. we read this, like my producer and I were just like <laughs> ripping our hair out. We we're like, ah, how can she think that this is like a cute anecdote about like understanding the value of a dollar? Right. Like, but that's. I mean, this is the world this girl comes from. I agree. It, there is a lot of sad stuff in there. I almost, like, argued against being so tragic. But then when you look at her childhood, it like, really, it just, yeah, it has to be portrayed that way because it was that way.
2: Well, right. And, and I mean, this the sort of psychology of it is, it's plain for everyone to see. Um, but then it's also like, well, you know, she hasn't risen above that or figured out how to sort of tame that or use it to her advantage. It's just like, it's just like all this childhood trauma, you know, we di- I haven't really touched on this sort of the the divorce. And that was another thing that I was amazed about in tabloid is you talk to Ivana Trump, the matriarch of the family, until the family dissolved. What? I mean, obviously they have a you know they have a fractured relationship, but how did you get her to uh, to chat with you? Because because I feel like even if they don't have a great relationship, like you know, Ivana doesn't play around.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, I knew a bunch of people who, you know, knew people in that circle, basically. And I Mm -hmm. also think like, they are always going to just tell you exactly what the Trump family line is. And she did like that's, they have their stories that they tell over and over and over. And they are all about how close everybody is and how they're like a quirky group of hardy people who are much better than the rest of like New York society. And they have really good values. Mm-hmm. Like that's their line all the time. And so that's basically what I heard from her. I mean, I think the the thing about Ivanka is like, th- there is some degree of like, she has a work ethic, right? They did impart that to her. Like there mm-hmm. were things that she learned. Um, take care of family, family loyalty, right? That's right. something that's really, really important for her, to mm-hmm. her. But it's that issue of the lemonade stand over and over. Like, I was talking to somebody recently who was saying that um, he'd been out to dinner with her and Jared, and, you know, Jared was, this is when, um, you know, she was flying around to all the third world countries to build Trump hotels with all of these really awesome oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And Jared was saying, oh, she's doing so amazing. She's seeing how far she can take the Trump name. It's incredible. And Ivanka was like, yeah, I'm flying to Georgia tomorrow morning. And the guy was like, like do you mean like, like buckhead georgia right and he's like no georgia the country i'm gonna build a hotel there right and he was just like what (laughs) like like at what point when you're that person when you're ivanka trump do you say to yourself like okay maybe this isn't like gonna go down in a way that is gonna be compliant with all the rules
2: um i wonder you know in your um uh you know this is an interesting story for you cuz i feel like it's this nexus of politics and celebrity and but it's very particular it's like a very new york story but also of a very particular time period and but trying to sort of grow beyond that and but but now we're in a place where you know it isn't just palace intrigue right it's it's actually like there are true implications to her political involvement and in her sort of insertion into this into this administration, I wonder, like, what have you gleaned about her? You know, about her involvement from the the reporting you've done, and sort of what the knock on effect, if any, will be from her? You know, pushing herself into this role.
1: I don't know. I mean, you know, the the line is she's she's meaningless, right? Yeah. She's a nobody. She's nothing. She's not even in the historical, you know, picture at all. Like, and if you look at the Woodward book, she's not in there very much. Yeah. If you look at the Michael Wolf books, she's in there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partially because of Bannon's influence and his particular distaste of her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's not Wolf's only source. And I think that again, it's the palace intrigue aspect where she really gets involved. And the fact that she pushed out Kelly, you know, maybe not yeah. her just on her own, but again, her and Jared and whatever other forces they could marshal, you know, she is going to continue to do that because she does not want anybody to stand between her and her direct access, right? right? So she kind of contributes to the chaos at the same time as she sees herself as a person who's bringing order. So you,
2: you've you been around these types of people for a long time, both personally and professionally. And I feel like nothing probably could surprise you at this point. But is there anything in your reporting about Ivanka that you were just like, whoa, what? No way.
1: Well, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff I couldn't report. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> that people told me off the record that was really really good. But I mean, I think like the big thing is that like in her office, she has like, it's all white, right? Like it's white walls, yeah. it's a white chair, it's a white desk. It's like perfect. And then, you know, there's some coffee table books about like, you know, this and that impressionistic painter or whatever. And there's a book about Burning Man. And mm-hmm. I was just like, Oh, my God. Like, on one hand, <laughs> this makes perfect sense. Because, like, she just wants to network with, like, rich guys. And, like, where is better in the world? Right. <laughs> oh, God. The networking with rich guys. Like, for the like, Google guys and Zuckerberg and this one and that one. And then on the other hand, I was like, oh, maybe she... Like, because she did do this thing. Like, she ch- hiked by herself for two weeks alone in Chile. She just went camping with Jared the other day. Like, I, I so think weird. she... I actually Actually was like oh my god! I think she's going to show up at Burning Man. Like I think she actually wants to go have an acid trip and just be like I'm trying to get back to my you know my ravey club self from 1999.
2: She's going to go do and, ayahuasca in Peru or something.
1: That's going to exactly. Be her thing. Yeah. I mean that's after that's for after the presidency. That's oh. the purging part. <laughs>
2: Vanessa Gregoriadis, host of Tabloid, the making of Ivanka Trump, thanks so much for chatting with us on The Gist.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: And now, the spiel. The other day I was scrolling through Twitter when a video popped up from The Hill, which is a political rag in D.C. where I live. It was a video of presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. She was standing on a makeshift stage in front of a crowd somewhere in Minnesota. A giant American flag hung behind her. Apart from Warren's cool-ass Wayfarer sunglasses, nothing too remarkable there. Hello, Minnesota! Dang, it is good to be here with all of you. It looks like Minnesota is ready for some change in Washington. Pretty standard political rally fare. But what struck me about the video was her waving. Elizabeth Warren is the most enthusiastic waver I have ever seen. She held a wireless mic in one hand as she bounded across the stage like some sprightly woodland fawn. With the other hand, she waved furiously like she wasn't a 70-year-old woman with flappy bicep skin. Don't at me on this. Some of my favorite people are 70-year-old women with flappy bicep skin. Hi, Mom. But watching her, I was like, um, I'll have what she's having. I have never seen a political candidate so unencumbered by their body since Howard Dean let rip his infamous Dean scream.
0: We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House.
2: We all know how well things ended for him after that whole I feel free in my body moment. I kept wondering as I watched the video, how is Elizabeth Warren able to move like she's the most pro-jazzercise candidate in the field? And I realized it's not because of Activia, though it might be. It's because of her clothes. Recently, NPR's Asma Khalid asked Warren about her campaign trail wardrobe. I've been
0: very intrigued by your fashion choices. Uh-huh. You have the black canvas look and it's uh, like a different color blazer. Is that yeah. the conscious decision? or yep. Do you, just, it's do it's you not like want you a text to text me to think think a dress this. in the morning? Yeah. Four minutes.
1: Did you catch that? It takes her four minutes to get dressed. She says she's saving her decision-making capacity. The candidate, who has a reputation for having plans for just about everything, has even got a plan for how to efficiently get dressed in the morning.
2: Warren's busy making plans, y'all. She doesn't have time for fashion. The senator's outfits, if you can call them that, are the most brilliant form of athleisure. Biz yoga. I'm trademarking that, so don't even think about it. She wears black yoga-style pants, a black camisole, and some type of jewel-toned cardigan like the kind women who work in freezing cold offices keep at their desks just in case. Liz generally pairs her biz yoga getup with some basic black boots, and bam, she's ready to high kick into voters' hearts. She's like a wonky rockette. Now, talking about what professional women wear is fraught territory, I know. It's just an internet troll's hop-skip away from a game of hot or not or worse— But I keep thinking about what it means that we're in a moment where we have six major presidential candidates who are women, people who are not resigned to the sartorial straitjacket that is the boxy navy suit and American flag lapel pin. I remember hearing this interview with Republican Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who ran for her party's presidential nomination in 2012. She explained how it took her twice as long to get ready as her male counterparts because she had to look perfect for the cameras. Angie explained that she had to pack a million outfits for the campaign trail, lest the commentariat ding her for wearing the wrong thing to a barbecue or a town hall. As a girl, it's completely different than as a man... man How so the with meal the events? Came. Well, because um, we would have to bring clothing changes with me. How many clothing changes did you do Oh, today? I could do four a day. Why? Well, because it's media driven. Uh if, can't I, be in the same if I'm at if I'm at an event, say and well, it has to be appropriate to the event. It wasn't vanity on her part. Bachman was the only female candidate in a crowded field of mostly white dudes. Though shout out to Herman Cain in his double-breasted suits looking like a lawyer who was going to get you out of a DUI. The pundits and political gadflies were perfectly happy to skewer Bachman for how she looked, likely because there was no one else in the field who looked like her. But now there are six women in the race, though Marianne Williamson seems like an otherworldly being that might be above or beyond gender. But six women running for a major party nomination means that we can't spill a lot of ink over what secret message Kirsten Gillibrand's earrings are signaling or whether Amy Klobuchar's sensible heels would hurt if she threw one at us. If Liz Warren wants to pass yoga pants off as work slacks, I say, you go, girl. Six women also means we can't spend a lot of time interrogating their likability, which I have put in quotes, which you can't see. We can't judge whether they're that ridiculous combo platter of motherly authority, feminine confidence, and policy gravitas with a dash of sexy lady voice, though not too much. We can't collectively critique their hair or their clothes or their makeup. There's just no time. There are six women on the stump, and they all have important stuff to say— even wackadoo Marianne. Girlfriend, you were so on. You know what else having six uniquely dressed women in the field means? That all those white guys are real hard to keep track of. Apart from human beanstalk Bill de Blasio and zygotic Boy Scout Pete Buttigieg, all the white guys who aren't Grandpa Joe or small-s Socialist Bernie are having a rough time. I can't tell a Bullock from a Bennett— I could distinguish woke Daddy Jay Inslee from the pack, but that's because he deigned to wear a blue-striped dress shirt and green tie during the debate. So daring. What I'm saying is that maybe we've reached a moment in this country's political maturation where female candidates for the highest office can be judged on leadership and action and ideas. What? No, that's crazy. And not for what's in their closet. Unless it's a bunch of skeletons, in which case I say, judge away. Don't get me wrong. I love thinking about how we use clothes to telegraph certain things. Our creativity, our sexuality, our utter indifference to current fashion trends. We're all in some type of drag, using our clothing to paint a picture of who we would like to be and how we would like to be seen. In this way, clothing is power. We can construct our own narratives based in part by what we wear. And that's great news for women in politics, particularly the ones, plural, running for president. We're in a unique time in our history where these fierce fems can define what a female president might look like. Men don't have that luxury. We have a fixed notion of male presidential attire. Bulky suit, navy, never gray, and God forbid tan. Patriotic tie in red or blue. Purple if you're that bozo who wants to signal how bipartisan you are. White shirt, black shoes, no glasses, no beard, despite how hard Ted Cruz tried to make his facial hair a thing. But future women presidents can wear cool sneakers and jeans, like Kamala Harris, or political lady blazers, like Tulsi Gabbard, or a la Elizabeth Warren, they can throw a light cardi over their Soul Cycle kit, give fifteen speeches, shake nine thousand hands, and still command a room and the Oval Office. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Biename. Thanks to Pesca for letting me steer his ship for a day. Check me out on Twitter at Ober and Out. Check my podcast out at Failure Show. Um-peru, de-peru, do-peru, and thanks for listening. Do I actually have to do this thing? Um-peru, do-peru, do-peru? <laughs> thanks for listening? Really? <laughs> I looked it up. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the uh, it's the turkey penis, Peru, Peruvian turkey penis. Yeah, yeah. All right, here I go. Watch me go.